1: Legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of WICDONALD'S! The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece WICD nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful! Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at WICDONALD'S! Ba da ba ba ba! Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.
2: Hey everybody, it's Holden here. I'm not a wizard. I'm not a bruiser. That's right. I am now a slave to the
0: cube.
3: <laughs> wizard and the cuber begins now. Your number one cube-based programming.
2: I tell you what, man, I've got I've gone through it this week. And come out the other side, and man, what a thrill. It all—it kind of gave me Dark Souls vibes solving my first oh, Rubik's Cube. It is
3: at Okay, are, are we just going to get, it for, I get mean, into it? Let's get into it, dude. We're talking about the Rubik's Cube, y'all. Let's get into it, dude. All all right. It's been a cool week. All right, all right. Let's just talk about, like, a, not even a gush, just, like, without, no, like, being able to solve a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. What did the Rubik's Cube represent in your mind? Because for me... It was always, like, this ubiquitous object of, like, pop, of genius. Yes. That it was a shorthand for, this is what a smart person knows how to do. I remember playing with one in the uh, 90s. There was one in my uncle's house. And, like, I would spend, like, it felt like, you know, who knows when you're that young. But, like, hours trying to just get one side solved and then... Figuring, then like ruining it, trying to solve the other sides. It felt like there was no way. It felt impossible. You would like, it was extremely frustrating that, you know, you would like make progress and then undo that progress. But it was this captivating object, you know, with the brightly colored sides, the perfect cubicness of it. It's satisfying. It's like spinny and clicky and there's order and chaos all contained in this one plastic object. And they were everywhere. They were just like you know it was uh, in visual shorthand for like nerd or smart in so many forms of pop culture
2: totally yeah it just represented 80s nerd I mean that's the ultimate you know it just always represented 80s nerd yeah. and then uh, and that's kind of the cool thing about it is that you know it was it was sort of deemed this flash in the pan thing until years and years later you're online and all of a sudden you're seeing this footage of these like crazy kids sitting and like Mm -hmm. i think the funnier thing almost than their quick solves on cubes was the reaction of the room when they would like break a world record everybody like jumping in the air and freaking out and you're like oh wow there's like a whole subculture around this fucking puzzle that made us nuts when we were kids and i agree with you jake you would play with one you would get one side solved maybe two sides solved and and, uh, you know, little I know, I mean, it's so funny. I mean, the real way to solve this thing, which we can get into in a little bit, really is just I don't really know how you do it on your own. You know what I mean? Yes. And And I, I don't know, unders- get people who figured out how to do it without looking up. A series of algorithms, and that's really how you solve this thing. Is you got to go online, and there's all these different approaches. But there's one very common one, and we'll talk about that that people generally use, especially beginners, uh, but also speed cubers. And you know, we it, it's like, oh, I just need to like learn this approach and this system, and we'll get there. And I did just that this week, and I had the best time. I got really, I'm still trying to do it. My goal now. Is to be able to solve a cube without any cheat sheets, any help. Yeah. Right now, I'm about halfway there, but I've got three pretty, you know, three complicated enough algorithms in front of me the, to 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 finish it. It's out. that and top it's, yellow
3: layer when the, when the algorithms layer. get longer than like six uh, moves.
2: Yeah, it becomes a little. But then you try to find the p- pattern in the algorithm and enough to to remember because. I thought that first, okay, so when you get, you, you, first you do the white cross up top is usually mm-hmm. where you lead. Then you do, you fill in the white corners of that and get those in the right place. Left trigger, right trigger. Yeah. Then Then an interesting thing happens. Then you've got to flip the cube around and you've got to try to fill in the bottom two rows of colors. And that's when you hit your first, like, actually complicated algorithm. And last night I memorized it and now I can Mm -hmm. just do it Whenever I want, and it feels awesome. And I'm like, wow, I can just, I, I just know this series of moves in this certain way. If I want the block to go either down right or down left, it's so cool. I feel so powerful. And that is very similar to what I said when I started to the Dark Souls thing, where like it seemed insurmountable at first. Mm-hmm. When I first got this cube, and it, it's a weird feeling because unless you're going to break it apart or whatever, which, you know, I'm not going to do when you first mix it up and get all the colors wrong, you feel this sense of, like, will I ever see this cube back in its right positioning ever again? I don't know, because I've never solved a cube before, right? I did only break it apart and put it back together with all the squares in the right spot. That's the only way I'd ever solved one up to this point. Mm -hmm. And so, it took a few days. It probably would have only taken one night if I was, like, determined to just work on the cube all night. But, you know, I'd mess with it for a little bit, get to the first step. Second night, I got to, like, the second, third Step, but the third night, I sat down and and finished my first cube, and I felt like a god in this very Dark Souls boss way, where I was so thrilled. And I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it, and and it was really cool to get to do it. I'm glad you said uh, Dark Souls because the tr-
3: the uh, you know we d- we looked up the story of the Rubik's cube, the interesting characters along yeah, the way. We'll talk about Erno that. Erno Rubik, all that stuff. But really, what will stick with me this week is finally solving a cube. With uh, a little bit of help, I uh, you personally used the a lot of
2: help for me. (laughs) How to
3: solve a Rubik's cube video hosted by Robbie Gonzalez on the Wired uh, YouTube channel. Uh, It took me an hour just to like watch it through enough and even understand the steps. And I still need those last few layers, like you know, uh, getting the yellow face on top. Like I still need to look up the algorithms. But realizing at long last that. When you see someone solve a Rubik's cube, they're not like doing this incredible act of superhuman mental spatial reasoning. No. Cuz in my head when you saw someone solve it in like I imagined it's like you have all six sides you see the matrix. in your head. Yeah. Yeah, you see the matrix code and you understand implicitly like how things are moving and you are solving it in real time using your own deductive reasoning in a in a in a show of just mental Power that I could not conceive of. Like I could it, it would be like, you know, calculating pie on the fly without
2: memorization. Pie like it fly, just felt- my favorite uh Nickelodeon show. <laughs> I love that. About the talking pie that flies into kids' faces. That yeah, was yeah, my yeah. favorite. And they'd start crying as they were as their birthday. It was great. But
3: the reality is, solving the Rubik's Cube is a fucking video game. Yes. You look at it, you take in visual information, and then you execute moves that you remember for that scenario.
2: Especially like a a complicated Souls boss, because at first you're like, oh my God, this isn't going to happen. And then you start to chip away at the layers Mm -hmm. of the boss, and all of a sudden you're like, okay... I can fully execute on these series of moves, but these moves always get me. And then you learn your workarounds for those. And then by the end, you're like, I am a god. Nothing can defeat me. But you're literally just... The top
3: layer. The top layer is like yeah. when you see the second life bar show up. That's yes, exactly. <laughs> like
2: totally. It, it really was so cool with that shit. And you texted me. What did you say? I mean, you literally were like, all this time, I never realized this is just a video game. Yeah. Like, this is... Yeah, You yeah. are.
3: And the... Uh, and, you know, the in the speed cubing competition, it is about like manual dexterity as well as memorizing longer and longer chains of algorithms for more and more, uh, you know, uh, singular scenarios so that all you do is see the pattern on the face and know implicitly rotate the face piece two turns, rotate the right piece counterclockwise one turn, rotate the back piece three turns, rotate the upper piece one turn counterclockwise and all that's happening in a blink of an eye because you've just trained and trained and memorized yeah. and memorized till your fans are like acting faster than human thought. And that is a video game. That's not, you know, at no point are they like, you know, conceive that nothing is happening like in real time. These are like, this is training and execution on training, yes. and that blew the entire thing open for me in a way that I really, truly, like, it just felt so amazing learning the secret after, you know, you uh, roughly, roughly, there's probably like a billion cubes in the world right now. Mm-hmm like, between official Rubik's Cube people, between, like, knockoff Rubik's Cubes, little keychain Rubik's Cubes, little, like, two-by-two cubes. There's a billion of these things out there, and, like, the actual percentage of people that have solved them is probably under a million. Like, it's, there's, like, one in 1,000 people have actually solved a Rubik's
2: Cube. But I'm telling you right now, Do yourself this favor, cross this off your bucket list. A cube costs like eight bucks for a decent one. You can, sure, you can get a cheaper one, even. Um, Mine came in the mail within like a day or whatever. And then, I mean, it's all right in front of you. Just go up. I used it's on ruwix.com, R U W I X.com. I just literally Googled. How to Solve a Rubik's Cube, it had, you know, a full kind of explanation, and it linked to a video as well that I used, um, and it's it's one of those great experiences you can give yourself. This is one of my favorite experiences that I get over and over again, and why I'm so hooked to the Dark Souls series and video games in general. You know, I have this same sensation a lot of times with Street Fighter, where... You get this thing where you open this thing up. You look like you feel like a fucking monkey (laughs) holding like a tool for the first time, trying to follow these how to's. You think this is no way you just feel so you're like, well, let me at least just try to get the first couple steps. Maybe this just isn't for me. And slowly but surely, like literally within hours or, or days. You're working this thing like you've like you always it's always <laughs> been in your life. I I know I, I'm fucking with it right now. I've already got the top white almost have the top white layer and and, and there is a interesting compulsion there the cycle of solving the cube and mm. then it, and then you put it down and then you eye it it might even be 10 minutes later you maybe just, even less. you just want to scramble you it again eye it and you go let me just scramble <laughs> that thing cuz it's such a good you know kind of anxiety tool too to scramble oh my it you're like well now that it's scrambled i might as well just get the white cross i mean that's easy enough right and all of a sudden i'm solving it. i probably since i solved this cube 2 days ago i probably solved it 15 times Probably, I just, over and over again, it's it's a compulsion. I, I kind of stop what I'm doing sometimes to get a quick solve in, and then go back to, it's like, just such a, it's awesome, it's compelling.
3: One of the themes that has showed up over and over again, whenever the cube kind of enters into popular consciousness, is that either, it, it causes madness. Either it confounds you, and you wish to destroy it, and you <laughs> feel so frustrated and lost, or you, or you learn the magic, and you can't put it down, and all of a sudden you want to get a faster time. Yeah, you want to like get a different. You want to get a four by four. You want to get a five by five.
2: Like me, I want to just be able to do it without looking at a cheat sheet. Right. Yeah. So now I'm compelled to slow. But what a fun project! That's just a thing I can do every now and again, where I'm just slowly but surely learning these algorithms. Mm-hmm. And if I if I can solve a Rubik's cube without looking at at a cheat sheet. Uh, A, I'll feel amazing about it. For the rest of your life, you can
3: pick one up.
2: And you can be the smart guy from the eighties movie. I want to, I want to take them on trips and stuff and play with them on the airplane or what. It's such a good thing to, as a go to, to be able to do that. Yeah, exactly. Like it's awesome. It's so cool. And it's so easy. You so quickly can look like, you know what you're doing. You know what I mean? What's fascinating is uh,
3: we, I, we watched a couple of videos
2: of like competitive
3: speed cubing and These people who have like dedicated their lives to mastering this highly specific skill and executing these intensely complicated algorithms where, you know, if you look at the notation, it'll just be like F, F prime, U, U prime, R, R prime, B, B prime, like just, just strings of this information. They'll get, they'll, they'll be in this intense setting. They'll be presented with a cube they've never seen before. The crowd of people cheering them on, they'll hit the timer, go for it, hit it down, maybe seven seconds of the most intense focused concentration that you could ever have, and then immediately pick up their personal cube and just start solving that one again.
2: Like they yes. can't stop. Yeah. It's, it's, that's how I feel. I, you know, you're watching me right now. I'm, I'm working on it right now, man. I'm making my white cross right now. On the uh, Sunday study session, we watched the
3: uh, Netflix documentary, the speed cubers, very heartwarming, very lovely. Yes. And really uh, good watch. They, there was a behind the scenes shot of the uh, green room for the world championships. And I think either 2018 or, or 2019, and just the the sound of all of them just all clicky clacking away, like they have spent all day cubing, doing their cubes, and still in this moment of like tension, the only thing that can comfort all of them is just click 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 click, like like a room full of locusts.
2: I love it. The cube. Once you are once you are
3: cube pilled, Holden, there's no going back. I'm
2: telling you, man, it's awesome. And uh, it's just such a cool testament. Like you know, even the the man who invented it, uh, Erno Rubik, talks about this bizarre relationship he has with the cube. You know, yeah, the yeah. fact that you can refer to it as the cube—it's this mm-hmm. compelling, bizarre thing that that um, has has it stood the test of time. And I think that's why we're here to talk about it. It stood the test of time in a way that most things like this shouldn't i mean you brought up the fidget spinner right Mm -hmm. gone the way of the dodo i mean yo-yos come in and out you know what i mean you could we could definitely do an episode on yo-yos think about how many other things like little puzzly things like this you know they come and go they're a fad for a little while and then people drop them but the it's really cool how miraculous this fucking cube of colored squares has been and just how like perfect it is in design and execution it's, it's, you, you kind of can't, I mean, you can't do better than this as a puzzle toy. No. You know, I mean, it just every, it is everything about it is perfectly honed in and tuned to be this like great forever puzzle. And um, so happy we're finally doing this episode. I did not realize how much this was going to take over my, like, this has taken over my week mm-hmm. in a way that is. B- b- not happened in quite a while on this, on this show. And, and it was a great surprise to me is that going into it, I didn't even think I was going to get and solve a cube. Mm-mm. And then when you said you were get, you got and was working on solving a cube, I was like, I can solve the fucking cube. <laughs> Jake's a fucking idiot. Yeah. Jake's the dumbest guy. I know <laughs> I can solve the cube.
3: I saw him give up halfway through putting on socks. Yeah. I saw him
2: <laughs> lend a dog money. Like what? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And he was shocked when he didn't get it back, too. Uh,
0: <laughs> all right. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or.
2: The Rubik's Cube, a 3D combination puzzle first invented in 1974 by Hungarian sculptor and architect Erno Rubik. Since it hit major markets in 1980, it has become one of the biggest puzzle toys of all time. And today, there is a massive community of speed cubers dedicated to solving it as quickly as possible. Erno Rubik, let's talk about him, the man behind the whole thing. He was born in Budapest, Hungary, in 1944 during World War II. His father was a flight engineer, and his mother, a poet, and his father seems to be a major influence on his uh, interests and later his career leanings and education. Rubik said, father and boy, parents and kids, we are based on them. Oh, yeah, he talks very cryptically and weird. He oh, talks like every um, word out of like his mouth. Like H.R. Giger or something like, like that.
3: Like, honestly, I would want nothing less than a Hungarian architect named Erno Rubik <laughs> to, like, be this fucking wookie woogie, woogie <laughs> in his every quote.
2: Father and boy, parents and kids, we are based on them, through both through our genes and by seeing how they live. He was not a person who wanted to push me in any direction, speaking of his father. I actually spent more time with my mother and was closer to her. My father was working in the countryside, but I saw his work and it was important to me. After finishing his education at a university in Budapest, he and some other young engineers decided they wanted to manufacture airplanes, gliders, and other products. So they applied for a loan and got one and they built a factory, which I got to visit. His dad was oh, this is still his dad. This is still his dad. His dad was an expert in glider uh and he gained quite a reputation for this he was the glider guy. i mean
3: he won the kosuth prize in 1963 wow. if you're hungarian you know Not what a huge coast, fucking dude. deal get him The Kosuth prize. Yeah, yeah. You
2: got the golden, uh, I believe you got the golden submarine sandwich for that, right? (laughs) And you get, I think you get a year of free blowjobs too, I heard also with that.
3: I mean, uh, that's actually a translation error in Hungary, in communist Hungary. What you did get was a bucket of cabbage.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. I was
2: way (laughs) off. Rubik uh, said beside him, I learned a lot about work in the sense of a value creating process, which has a target and a positive result, too. Both figuratively and literally, he was a person capable of moving a hill. There was nothing that could prevent him from doing what he decided or bringing a project to a completion. If necessary, even with his own hands, no work was unworthy or undeserving for him. So kind of taught him that ethic of like, if you have an idea, you can see it through, you can make anything happen. Rubik would go on to study sculpture at the Secondary School of Fine and Applied Arts in the late 50s. And in the early to late 60s, he went to school at the Budapest University of Technology, becoming a member of the architecture uh, faculty and then the Hungarian Academy of Applied Arts where he joined the Faculty of Interior Architecture and Design. He was quite the academic in other words. He mm-hmm. put a huge emphasis on education, a huge value on learning very specific corners of education in order to, you know, make his ideas happen for him. So it's a perfect combination of all those things.
3: And you know, the the result of his studies was at once uh, you know, he started in sculpture and like purely aesthetic art. He then learned uh, design and interior design, which is all about, like, kind of form and function, as well as architecture, which is just kind of raw, like, material function. So, of course, like, the ultimate expression of his journey is this deceptively simple, highly aesthetic, engineered, industrial object. Yeah. That, like, is so compelling in in so many ways before you even figure out what, you, what do you even do with it?
2: Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. It's just like all these things kind of floating in the air. Perfect, perfect combination of, of, you know, different academic corners to get to where he was at. Uh, uh, l- l- also, he, what he also, um, he switched to architecture. It combined the practical with aesthetics, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense for getting to the Rubik's cube. Uh, and all this leads to him becoming a professor or uh, of architecture at the Budapest College of Applied Arts from 1971 to 1979. And this is the window in which he will invent the Rubik's Cube. In 1974, Rubik wanted to teach three-dimensional design to his students. Rubik said, I was interested in geometry construction and working in three dimensions and looking for a tool to explain 3D transformations. That led me to discover the cube. I love that. (laughs) Discover the cube. Like it was always there. You know, I love when when inventors think like this. It always existed. I just had to find it. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to be the first one to find it. I don't like the term invent because it's really just finding what is already there, but not visible or tangible to others. You know another person can take a walk on your road and see stones, but you might see that one has the potential to be a diamond, and even though its qualities are hidden, and hopefully you also have the patience to find what is inside. Rubik took to the school's wood shop to create the very first Rubik's Cube, initially called the Magic Cube, using blocks of wood and rubber bands. Oh,
3: you can find pictures of this online, and ironically enough, it is like not a cube. The corners are cut in a way that it's kind of like a six-sided hexagon thingy. It's very it's very weird looking at the original uh, wood cube puzzle that he designed. Mm. But he had this project this like exercise he would do with his students where they would like take a cardboard cube and like cut it down into smaller pieces mm-hmm. and like that would give them a sense of like how much space a 3D figure is when broken up and how you don't really like think about how much bigger the area is of like a three dimensional figure than a two dimensional figure. And the, he wanted like something that had the aesthetic of the final cut up cubes. And, um, Really, like once he had the vision of the cubes within a cube itself, it was uh, just a lot of tinkering to find the mechanism that would allow the pieces to freely rotate while staying solidly together. Uh-huh. And uh, what a lot of people point to as like one of the most brilliantly, elegantly simple things about it is that all the center face piece of every single one is actually uh, they're like they
2: can't really move, right? That's like one of the first things you need to know (laughs) when looking at the cube, I think to inform some things Mm -hmm. like the, the color middle block is never moves. So that will always be oriented in the same place. And that kind of, that's your first like, oh. I mean, it's such an obvious thing when you think about it, but something you kind of have to tell yourself initially. So you're trying to align all the other colors with that middle cube. That's that's like the, the first the first little thought experiment.
3: And then the corner pieces, which are of course the corners and the edge pieces, which are in the four cardinal directions from the center pieces, all operate on rails and slide between each other all kind of keeping those centerpieces as their pivot points. And this, uh, within this very simple kind of like uh, six sided kind of uh, cross, is how where the magic happens. Obviously, there's a ton of progress that has been made over the years. If you like buy one of these like high performance speed cubes, they got magnets, they got yeah, different magnets. pivot systems, they got all sorts of fun things. It's also kind of interesting that, like, you know what? No, hold on. I'll save this tangent for later in the story. Actually, okay. But uh, I got a, I got a side tangent that I'm excited to talk about.
2: I'm excited for the tangents, Jake. Uh, Rubik does have another quote on making the cube. He said, first, I needed to understand the nature of the object and how to make it work. I used my hands, simple tools, the design school workshops. I sometimes used food because it's easy to work with. That took a few months. And then there was the process of transforming it into a product and putting it on the market. That took three years. I started in 1974, and the first Magic Cubes were produced in Hungary in 1977. Then it was another three years before we introduced the cube to the world market. We're celebrating the 40th anniversary of that now from at the time of the interview. Uh, but of course, he also had to solve the damn thing. He, once he made it uh, and he scrambled it all up, that's kind of one of the funniest uh, things is he was determined to solve it himself before he like showed it off. And it took him a month. Yeah, He said after a month he, he felt, quote, a great sense of accomplishment and utter relief. And it's almost, a, it's, it's really admirable that he even finished it. You know, I I, like I said, I mean, I've never been able to do it on my own. I wouldn't really know how I would have done it on my own now that I know what I know. Like starting you know?
3: from zero, starting with no frame of reference. It's almost I honestly wonder if he wanted to make a puzzle or if he just had this idea for this beautiful kinetic sculpture object, got it scrambled and realized he didn't know how to put it back together. Yeah, because like it's it's a I, I honestly don't know whenever Erno talks about the cube, it's always in these very lofty terms uh, in the book I read uh, he did the introduction for it and he says like like other pieces of art, the cube is more than itself, though it may look simple at first it is in fact rather complicated and complex at the same time. When I studied sculpture and architecture, I always felt some contradiction between grand art art that manifests the thought and ideas of the artist. With applied art, the connection of our everyday
2: tasks in all fields of life like <laughs> it's a cube calm down it's so, but it's no, I get it though there's like this weird magic about it it 's bizarre, uh so then he goes on to show it to his classroom of students, and the students take to it very quickly, and he realizes he could really have something here with a wider audience. Then he applies that this is all because of his dad he he learned about patent. Uh, applications and stuff from him. So the next thing he immediately does is apply for a patent on it and then set out to get it out into the world. And that's why it, we I mean we really if he hadn't had the father he had and the knowledge of this stuff it probably would have been much more of the Wild West when it came to the Rubik's Cube you know it would have been the. and there are a bunch of different versions of it that aren't like Rubik uh, you mm. know branded but still it's kind of cool that it was like he He immediately got on top of that because this could have easily just been replicated and it would have just been like all over the place and we wouldn't have like the Rubik's Cube per se uh, Uh, So Rubik said, when you make something, you need to prove to others that it has value. Finding people who agree with you takes time and luck. You need a partner with expertise and a willingness to experiment and you need teamwork. So you are moving together our first manufacturer was a very small Hungarian company without enough resources. But the cube I made with that company became very popular. And based on that and growing interest from abroad, especially from uh, mathematicians, we wanted a partner beyond the closed economy of the iron curtain. So a lot of it was Hungary having weird restrictions on co- like commercial sales and stuff is why he reached out to American, an well, American toy company.
3: It's kind of this interesting thing. I- I don't know exactly like the the way I read the story is uh the first cubes the magic cubes uh if I if I remember the word correctly I believe it's called uh the uh huvak coca huva or something there's like there's some there's some funny it's funny <laughs> in Hungarian. oh buvos kaka <laughs> the buvos kaka was made by uh, Polytechnica, which was a cooperative. Again, this was uh, you know behind the the Iron Curtain, um, an employee owned cooperative that agreed to make the cube. I think it was an initial run of five thousand, and it was a Hungarian born businessman who was living in Germany, I believe, or Vienna, Austria, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, named Tibor Laxi, who actually like uh, discovered that the cube uh, was, it was a waiter. Tibor was back home in Hungary and saw his waiter just confounded by this little rotating object, the, uh, the kaka itself. And he bought it off his waiter for a dollar. He then took it to the Nuremberg Toy Fair uh, with Rubik's Blessing and was trying to find a German uh, toy distributor. He didn't have a booth. This is super key to our like story of success, uh-huh. the epic pitch. He literally just walked around with it and like made a big show about this weird cube in his hands. And if anybody asked him about it, he would be like, ah, yes, the wonderful Hungarian uh, uh, thing, the, the magic cube. Please, take a look, take a look. You know, he pitched it to a bunch of companies, and they just... A lot of them said it's too complicated to manufacture, it's uh, too quiet, you know, if this is a children's toy, it needs to have some kind of, like, loud action involved. Other people were like, it's too abstract, it won't market well, because, like, even if it is captivating, you don't know how to communicate this to a general uh, audience, and uh, it was eventually, uh, Laxi, with the help of another Hungarian named uh, Tom Kramer, uh, persuaded Stuart Sims of the Ideal Toy Corporation to come over to Hungary and see the Cuban play. This is uh, September 1979. Ideal was an American company, and it took a lot of finagling between the Hungarian government, uh, Rubik, Laxi, and the American capitalist company to, like, find a deal. But... They agreed on a one million cube order and exclusive rights to the magic cube. A million cubes? That's madness, man. Ironically enough... Uh, the Magic Cube was uh, immediately kiboshed as the name.
2: Well, there was legal stuff around that, right? With other toys being named certain things. That's what I gleaned from from that. You see, I'm shocked that it wasn't actually Erno Rubik pushing for it to be called the Rubik's Cube. No. It was actually ideal that, that was like, let's call it that.
3: Two potential names. Uh, the book I read, besides uh, conflicting toy ideas, there was also... Um, uh, the uh, I think we might have been in the beginnings of like the D&D uh, satanic panic and magic might be associated with black magic and nefarious arts. Uh, earlier name suggested was the Gordian Knot, <laughs> which, you know, the famous mythical uh, knot that you couldn't solve except by cutting it with a sword. Mm. Or Inca Gold, which I have no clue what the Weird, fuck they were yeah. thinking with that one. But apparently it was uh, laxi who decided to go for Rubik's Cube because, A, it gave homage to its Hungarian origin, as well as it's just a beautiful piece of assonance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it flows, it's concussive, it rhymes
2: a little, it's great. Yeah, it really seems perfect for it. It's kind of hard to think of it any different way. What is a, what is a Rubik, anyways? It's his Erno, Erno Rubik. No, I know, but I'm like, but also the word Rubik, outside of it being a last name just feels right. Like it sounds like something that would be like in a discussion about algorithms. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, it's a rubric of, you know, are you you thinking of a
3: rubric and like an academic rubric? rubric,
2: Yeah. But, but just the way it slides off the tie, it sounds like a mathematical thing, Mm -hmm. you know, rubrics, uh, it just and I always I always thought it was Rubix, right? A Rubik's cube. I never thought it was in. You know what I mean? You had like Cubics, robots for everyone? Is that way? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's how I always lo- thought of it in my head. Spelled right, so it just it it just sounds right for what it is. Just weirdly enough, his last name was perfect for it. So the Rubik's cube hits international market in 1980. It has a slow start on sales, like things do, but Ideal pushed it hard in TV and newspaper ads. And while that's going on, it starts winning some major toy awards all over the world. And that's like more in 1981. Then by 1982, something around 100 million Rubik's cubes are sold. It just becomes right perfect timing for the 80s as well as well. Becomes such a symbol of the 80s. Uh, One thing I never thought about before, Rubik has a cool quote about, when we started, puzzles were not the mainstream for the toy business. I'm not speaking about jigsaw puzzles, because when those are done, your game is finished. You can frame it or put it back in the box. My kind of puzzles are more complex. They're not finished when you finish. You can do them again differently or faster. Those are more popular now. And I never thought of that before, but it makes total sense.
3: Well, he's right and he isn't right. And I feel like in other interviews, he has referenced uh, these earlier puzzles as well. But before the Rubik's Cube, uh, there were tons of puzzle fads that made their way across the continents. Tangrams, uh, you know, those like little triangles that you rearrange into different shapes and like try and recreate the shapes using every piece. Mm. That was huge in the 1800s. I believe in uh, England, it was known as the fashionable Chinese puzzle. And they were like, you know, uh, etched from like solid ivory pieces. Uh, There was the, uh, this is something that was crazy, the 15 puzzle. Do you remember those, like, cheap plastic slider puzzles you used to get mm. in, like, uh, goodie bags as a kid? Mm-hmm. Where it's just numbered 1 through 15, and you just had to slide with one
2: open spot yeah, to get those. it in the right order. Yeah, yeah, I love those. Or or it would be in the, a picture that you'd have to put together.
3: Yeah, yeah. That was, like, the 1880s version of the Rubik's Cube. People went nuts for it. It was used in, like, uh, political cartoons. There was Pigs and Clover, which was uh, one of those like labyrinth puzzles where you move like little balls around a maze. That became its own fucking like fad. The puzzle in of itself. The singular, like handheld puzzle that you can replay over and over again, was one of the first like purely fun-based manufactured goods. For both kids and adults it could travel the world easily it could be like made in various small factories like the the handheld puzzle in of itself was always an object of fascination throughout human history. Not only that and this is where things get a, a little bit nutty um there was a guy in America also in the 70s in America there was a guy named Larry Nichols who was also this academic weirdo who was fond of mechanical puzzle and bespoke objects, he invented the two-by-two two rotating puzzle with colored sides. Uh, he used a magnetic attachment system and desperately tried to market it, and it just never really got off the ground, including uh, Ideal Toys. even pitched it to Ideal Toys, but uh, he has the patent for it. It's there. Uh, Larry Nichols... Uh, you know, the, the the idea of like the, the just shape and color and fidgeting is just it was in the in the air. We like either just something comes along and creates these like easy to reproduce objects of
0: fascination. And it just so happened that Rubik had the juice. Uh-huh. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes!
3: Also, I find that I don't know when else we're going to talk about this, but one of Ideal Toys initial uh, promotional moves for the cube was to host parties, fancy parties uh, hosted by Hungarian actress Zsa, Zsa Gabor, <laughs> the most famous Hungarian
2: of them all. That's great. I love it.
3: Darling, darling, you must look at the cube. It's oh, it's marvelous. <laughs> so the
2: cube hits the scene, it's a big deal. It really isn't until later, which is why and we'll get into speed cubing in a little bit, but it's really more well and there was also a book written by a 13-year-old. We'll talk about that. Oh,
3: well, I mean, more there is at a, at the height of Rubik's Cube mania in 1981, uh three out of the top 10 best-selling books. I think at one point even four we're all Rubik's Cube how to solve books.
2: The first guidebook was written, uh, written for solving the cube, it was by a thirteen-year-old boy named Patrick Bossert, titled "You Can Do the Cube." <laughs> released in 1981, it went on to sell over 1.5 million copies and taught you those basic algorithms to get it done. I don't know if he used the method we're using now, but we're about to get into it. Solving a Rubik's Cube. All right, let's talk about a little, a little bit about what what this is, what this entails. Though it seems very complicated, you just got to learn these basic algorithms. And we say algorithm because it's not always the exact same every time. You're, you're, you're observing the, where the cube is at and where the colors are matching or not matching. And based on that, you're going to do things maybe a little differently. So that's why we don't just say you just have to do this exact set of moves every time and it'll solve. Because it kind of, after you do the first couple of steps... It's really more like, well, do I want this block to go down right or down left? And if it's going to go down left, I have to do this specific set of moves. But if I want it to go down right, I have to do these specific sets of moves. And onwards and onwards, you know? And sometimes you'll find you get to that top layer with the the yellow cross and... You might already have a yellow cross with the colors in place if you're lucky, you know, Mm -hmm. so you can totally skip entire steps if you just end up lucking out with that one solve, you know, so that's why we say algorithm. The
3: amount of luck involved in a solve is actually so significant that in competitive settings, they will do a set of five solves. Yes. And uh, remove your best time and worst time and then average the three middle times because that in the eyes of the cubing community is the truer sense of one's just raw cubing power. Right, right. Because if you got a really lucky scramble that required simpler algorithms and like really almost solves itself by the end, that shouldn't count as much as a more difficult solve. Or if you got fucked over by a crazy hard scramble, that also shouldn't count. So it is interesting how how they like judge individual solves and it's also why in world records uh the average which is what they do to deem the champion could be in like seconds upon seconds uh longer than the fastest single solve Uh uh-huh which is its own separate record because it is considered like its own thing
2: so the the first thing you want to do is you're going to want to learn some basic terminology and notation for instance F means front. Let's say if you're looking at a cube at the front, that entire front part, it's shifting that entire part. Right means the right uh, column, up means the uh, horizontal top uh, row. L means the left column. D means, it stands for down, which is the bottom row. That's what you would be twisting, right? But then are you twisting it right or left? They go by clockwise, counterclockwise. So if it's, let's say it's an F, then you're going to rotate it clockwise. But if it's an F with an apostrophe. That's a notation saying counterclockwise. And at first you're like, oh my God, my eyes just went cross." Mm-hmm. But it's really something that just takes a little bit of time and a little bit of, maybe a little bit of frustration, a little bit of definitely doing it very well wrong mm. to uh, get up and running. Honestly, all I did to start was I was like, all right, I'll get to the algorithm and notation a little bit. How about I just try my best to make a white cross with the co- two colors matching on each end of the cross, like red, red, blue, blue, as uh, on the other side um, uh, of the cross, right? So that that's kind of your first thing to get to. And, and just doing that. You start to realize like how the cube moves, how everything relates. And then you can kind of open up more to some of this more specific terminology. Um, the most commonly used method is the Friedrich method, also known as the CFOP method. For what it's worth, CFOP is an acronym for Cross First Two Layers, orientation of the last layer, permutation of the last layer. And that would be that top, the yellow on top is the opposite of white is the yellow mm-hmm. and white. I think it's kind of arbitrary why they choose that. If, if you could always start on orange and then end with the top layer being red, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 but yellow, I think white is just the kind of standard that people start with getting that white cross.
3: And even simpler first step, uh, is finding the Daisy, which is also, uh, important if you're doing white on bottom yellow on top where you you it's it's a little bit easier to manipulate the pieces uh to get the four white edge pieces around the yellow center Mm. and then it's a very simple step to align all the bottom layers uh to the white side in a way that helps set you up for easier uh easier alignment later in the game.
2: I see, I think I see what you're talking about. It's hard to describe this, you know, in mm-hmm. just words without any visuals or anything, but I hope we're doing it a little bit of justice. This method was created by speed cuber Jessica Friedrich, uh, who first encountered the cube at the age of 16 in 1981 when a French family visiting Czechoslovakia introduced it to her. There was no way to obtain one previously in her communist country. Essentially, uh, most all ways of solving the cube start with a cross, and for beginners, starts with the white squares forming across two matching colors on each side. The other two popular methods, however, are the Roux method, invented by French speedcuber uh, Gilles Roux, Roux, and the ZZ method, introduced by uh, Zbigniew Zborowski, by the way. Zborowski. (laughs) The Rue method starts off with a 3 two, one block on one side uh, uh, and then a 3-by-2-by-1 block on the opposite end, then going from there referred to as block building, whereas the uh, the CFOP method is more of like a layer method. The ZZ method, it actually combines the two. It combines a block building and layer-by-layer layer method into one approach. And different speedkeepers use different approaches mm-hmm. and maybe even a combination of different ones. There's all these different... And I think that once I can... I, I, what I want to do is memorize this one approach and be able to solve the cube without a cheat sheet. After that, if I'm still wanting to mess around... Might try to start learning these other approaches and see what what that looks like and feels like, you know, which is the fun of the cube. You know, it kind of it really does never end. And they're still introducing new algorithms to this day, which is why there's continuously more and more records popping up even the past few years. There's a whole like section of social media dedicated to uh,
3: cubing, speed cubing, novel cube puzzles as they're being released. Cube maintenance, cube uh, new algorithms, and uh, one video I watched uh, involved this uh, three by three cube that had barely indistinguishable shades of blue on every side. And they took it to a tournament and had like various members of the speed cubing community try and solve it. And one guy was so baffled by it that he said, "Ugh, I'm gonna have to solve this layer by layer." And everybody around him started laughing. <laughs> which means that the method for solving the cube that you and I have become so enamored with is like a joke baby way to do it. Totally. That we have not even climbed the first step to speed cubing greatness, which I found so fascinating. Um, back in the eighties, there were tons, this is still at the height of cube madness in, uh, 1981. There was a, uh, televised uh, championship for the TV show That's Incredible, where a 16-year-old won with a time of 26.04 seconds. And that was, you know, that's incredible. Uh, as of 2020, uh, as of 2023, I believe uh, the current record is for a single run, 3.13 seconds. Yes. And for an average, 4.48. That's fucking crazy fast <laughs> like that is just that's what 40 years of whittling and
2: streamlining and obsession has gotten us. well you say 40 years but really it's more like 20 because the the cube really was that flash of the pan at first the the puzzle becomes a hit Puzzle nerds everywhere become obsessed with it. The first recorded instance of sharing of tips and tricks on how to solve it was actually out of MIT, the MIT Cube Lovers mailing list, <laughs> which was established in July of 1980. And then, of course, more books and newsletters come, and uh, this most notably came in the form of Cubic Circular Quarterly Newsletter, which was created by mathematician David Singmaster. Also, uh, and through this newsletter, tournaments start to pop up uh, trying to see who could solve the cube the fastest. So the first big one was the World Rubik's Cube Championship in 1982, held in Budapest, uh, folks that are now well-known in speedcubing hi- history attended, including Jessica Fridrick, who invented that algorithm I'm literally using right now to solve the cube, Min Min Tai, and Lars Petrus, along with cubers from 19 countries. And they competed in a best-of-three-solves format. They hadn't done the um, get-rid-of-the-slowest-and-fastest times yet. Uh, and the winner got a gold-plated Rubik's Cube. The winner was Mean Tai from the U.S. with a solve time of 22.41 seconds. And then nothing. The next big world competition would not actually happen until 2003, over two years later. The cube came and went. It lay dormant there was there was no fanfare it was definitely deemed that 80s another one of those just 80s big you know one hit wonder kind of things oh there
3: was a huge backlash as more and more people bought cubes and more and more of them just like couldn't solve it there was uh just massive amounts of like novelty pushback. Uh, You could buy uh, sticker packs that would just cover the sides of the cube to make it look like you could solve it. (laughs) There were t-shirts that says uh, Rubik's Cube, the cure for sanity. Uh, They sold novelty paddles, like heavy wooden paddles that would call it the Cube Smasher for you to break your cubes when you were too done with it. There were novelty books (laughs) called 101 Uses for Your Dead Cube, 101 Ways to Destroy Your Rubik's Cube uh you can kick the cube a cube hater's handbook <laughs> uh there were novelty stuff called uh, the irish cube which was all green on all sides things were like at a certain point the amount of people that just had this plastic object that just is a reminder of their failure <laughs>
2: really just like made people hate this that's hilarious and i get it because i i felt the same way about it It was like this insurmountable impossible thing and it really is thanks to the internet that it ever came back because you know every description i read for like like famous speed cubers now famous -famous, Mm semi-famous you know it wasn't like they got a cube and then spent a month solving it and were hooked ever since no no they got a cube and immediately looked up a YouTube tutorial and solved it their first night of owning the cube and were hooked ever since. And that's how it really had this resurgence. Um, there was uh, 1999, there was a man named Ron Van Brukem. And a buddy of his, uh, the two of them established speedcubing.com, while another speedcuber named Chris Hardwick, no, not that Chris Hardwick, a different one, (laughs) established a Cubing Yahoo group. These two entities got enough momentum going to jumpstart a second world championship in 2003 in Toronto after 20 years. On the heels of this uh, competition, which suffered from a lot of organizational issues, things like that, they established the WCA, the World Cube Association, in 2003. 2004 to uphold more professional front for events moving forward. So there are different categories of speed cubing. There is just straight up solving cubes as fast as possible. In that you have the two by two by two, which is hilarious to watch because it's like point something. I mean, it's solving a two it's by two by second. two. Yeah, it's absurd. Uh, three by three by three. There's four by four by four. Five by five by five. Six by six by six. And the largest is seven by seven by seven. Uh, a cube that I will never attempt to solve. Personally, then the other categories are blindfolded solving, multiple blindfolded solving, one handed solving, and solving in the fewest moves, which is very interesting. And actually, um, every you're
3: going to talk about the God number.
2: Yes. So there are over 43 quintillion different possible configurations. So, right, million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. Mm -hmm. That's for that's that's over that many possible configurations of one, a single Rubik's cube, but it was also deemed that um, and is this the God number that uh, all cubes can be solved within twenty moves? Yes, although it's
3: called the God number because to be able to like know implicitly upon looking at a cube which twenty specific rotations outside of any pre memorized algorithms would be nearly impossible. Although the way it's going, who knows? Because you know when you when you say multiple blindfold cube solves, that means that you had to, you got like a minute to look at several scrambled cubes, remember what order they were in, and then remember the specific series of Jesus, algorithms yeah. to solve them. So yeah. it's like an insane show of uh, dexterity and memory and skill. Um, I know the blindfold situation actually had a controversy very early in the 2000s when it was discovered that one of the champion competitors who had broken several records was just peeking from under the blindfold. Ah. Now, at, at a championship events... The judge has to hold a laminated piece of paper between your face and the cube to make extra special sure you're not pe-
2: you're not peeking. Oh my god! What a fuck! I can't believe people cheat like that. It is so absurd. It's
3: funny though. It is very funny.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like, what does it matter? That you didn't actually win. You just cheated. All right. Anyways. Um, let's talk about some major players in this. And yes, this is also, you'll get a lot of this in that speed cubing documentary on Netflix, which is phenomenal. But we have to talk about Felix Zimdigs and Max Park. Felix, uh, in the more modern era of speed cubing, uh, arose as a legend of the sport. Uh, he's out of Australia. At the age of 13, he got into speed cubing after seeing YouTube videos on the subject, as I mentioned before. He would go on to win his first event he entered one year later at the New Zealand Championships. Simdig said, When I started out cubing, my practice regime was pretty basic. I would learn methods, techniques, or algorithms, then just spam speed solves until I was comfortable with using them in my solves. Sometimes I'd take a break from learning new things and only do solves. I also did plenty of untimed solves, which probably helped with discovering new things via experimentation. And after that, he was off to the races, setting world records left and right, then breaking them over and over again uh, the next several years. Uh, he In an eight-year span, he was largely undefeated and at one point held 12 separate world records concurrently. He has set over 100 world records during his career, which would be amazing if it weren't for Max Park coming out of California Diagnosed with autism when he was two years old. He had impaired motor skills, so his mother showed him a Rubik's Cube in hopes to improve on that, and Max was soon hooked to solving it at competitions. He managed to greatly improve his social development and was just damn good at speed cubing going on to break most all of the world records set by his idol Felix Zemdigs, who was incredibly supportive of him. It's a very sweet documentary that, you know, tells a bit of a story of autism and how important something like that can be for someone with autism was they were even talking about how like he was doing things like at, on the podium, he was like mimicking the like, um, you know the the other people on the podium uh physically to like fit in and stuff stuff that's really difficult for autistic people to pull off and it was just through this you know i also i think the first picture he ever appeared in was with felix you know it it got him out of his shell mm-hmm. it got him out of breaking out of some of the more difficult challenges when it comes to having autism which is beautiful and then felix seems like such a sweet person that loves the community so much and is so supportive of Max's achievements almost to like an emotional level. It's really beautiful to watch the scenes with them and everything. And yet, you know, the competition's so fierce, so, so fierce.
3: But this is how competitive this world has gotten. Uh, In 2010, Felix Zemdigs came onto the scene and uh, shattered the world record with a 7.03 solve, a single solve. Uh, Max Park just this year shattered the record again with a 3.13 solve. So, like, and this is again, we talked about like the world champion during the height of Rubik's Cube Mania was well over 20 seconds. When they brought back the competition, Uh, In the 2000s, 20 seconds was an unheard. This was like the result of decades of underground knowledge being passed down. And so as the cubes get more technically complicated... Uh, you can buy special cube lube to make sure that your cube spins faster. You can, yeah, like, they h-
2: lube the cubes. Yeah. By the way, they do lube the cubes in competition quite a bit, for the most part. I mean, everybody can use whatever I believe whatever cube they want, right? Is there a gold? Is there a bog standard cube? No, I believe uh, it's
3: you know there's specific events that are sponsored by different um, by different uh, uh, companies. Gan is one of the bigger kind of speed cube companies. Uh, those, that's the one where if you want to like hand tension every single joint and you need like magnets with the right amount of strength, Rubik makes their own speed cube and, uh, they teamed up with Red Bull for some events. Uh, there's actually a little bit of kind of, it's weird on the Nerf episode. We've talked about this on the Barbie episode. We've talked about this on the Lego episode that we talked about this. There's like this weird tension between the mothership company and the, died in like ride or die enthusiasts that want to take the art form further than the original company wants it to. Uh, Uh, there's been lawsuits between Rubik's and a lot of, uh, speed cube companies that like resell Chinese products. It's a very interesting thing. Um, but I, I think for the sake of like competitive equity, you are handed a, pre-scrambled cube that is done for every. everybody gets the same scramble i believe it's computer randomized for the competition i
2: think also it's got to be at least 20 turns i believe
3: 25 is what i read
2: okay 25 but yeah no
3: it's it's um you know if you're into like if you're into just fidgeting with like mechanic tweaking a mechanical object cubing is for you if you're about just like showing off how if you're just a competitive weirdo who wants to show how smart you are it's for you if you're just into the aesthetics of it it's for you i i we talked you know we gushed so hard about this in the beginning of the episode but like finally getting it yeah finally just getting even a glimpse into this world it
2: has that click moment that i love so much that's such a click moment to it that I highly recommend anyone to try and actually get a cube and do a cube solve because you will feel so good about yourself (laughs) doing it. Yeah. um, Some of the other world records, Tommy Cherry from America holds the blindfolded world record for both single solve and average solve with single solve at 12.78 seconds on a blindfold, dude, an average of 14.72 seconds for the average world record. Max Park also holds the one-handed single solve, and that is at uh, 6.2 seconds. And these records uh, really fell dramatically over time. They're still, like I said, introducing new algorithms. The the It's a fun gold rush for sure. Um, I think it's starting to get dialed in. I think it's starting to become, I mean, at 3.13 seconds, you have to imagine it's getting to a point where it's i don't know how how much more progress they can make in in the art form
3: <laughs> it's actually hilarious um one of the videos that is like really popular on youtube was like called like why a f- why you can never solve a rubik's cube in under 4 seconds uh-huh.
2: and like they've done it since then that's crazy that's so crazy so Yeah, I mean, definitely check that out. Um, What else do I have here? The largest Rubik's Cube is six uh, foot seven inches by six foot seven inches by six foot seven inches. That was uh, built by Tony Fisher in 2019. And again, the the dates we're throwing out to you guys 2019, 2023 was when this 3.13 record was set. This is happening now in this way that is kind of shocking considering how old the Rubik's Cube is at this point.
3: No, social media, man. in a world of ASMR and crafting and highly specific uh, algorithms, cubing has never been bigger on the internet. TikTok is full of cube influencers. YouTube is full of cube tubers. Uh, people are sharing their methods. The uh, individual, every competition is live streamed like there's something like if you got the cube juice in you, Ugh. if your brain is cube lubed cube up, lube. you will find this community and this community will sink its teeth into you. Uh, it's just, I get, yeah, it's just a there's infinite number of variations on the cube, uh, you know, whether it's novel mechanisms, novel shapes. I, I remember fucking I had a Homer Simpson two by two where you just scrambled up Homer Simpson's head. <laughs> And you had to solve for that LEDs, magnets, uh, Maglev technology, uh, just, uh, just cubes with uh, cubes that you have to solve sticking out of the side. Cubes without any uh, colors on it. Cubes that are, that are actually like eight-piece hexagons. Like it's all just just you can dedicate your life to this and never grow bored and it's kind of unbelievable.
2: Yeah, I I love it, man. I've got a couple of quotes from uh, Erno Rubik, but that's about all I have. Anything else before we wrap this episode up, Jake? Uh, we didn't get to talk about
3: it, but uh, Rubik the Amazing Cube, yes, the Ruby Spears I? animated show. Uh, at the, again, during the height of the uh, Cube Mania, of course, of course, they had to do a Saturday morning tie-in cartoon that was aired alongside the Pac-Man cartoon from the 80s which i remember was actually kind of great. Uh it was the Pac-Man Rubik Hour on ABC. It aired only for a couple of months in 1983, mm. but it involved a family of Hispanic siblings uh finding a magical cube and it it looks like fucking Yoda his head is just sticking out of a fucking cube. It's just this little goblin troll. And he speaks with a baby voice. (laughs) Oh, I'm Rubik. I'm going to stop the bad man. It's like (laughs) very weird. It's incredibly insane. Um, I'm obviously going to be watching more of it on the cartoon dumpster stream because it's fucking crazy, but uh, it only aired 12 episodes and it is fucking dumb.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, here's the quotes, and we're going to get out of here. Erno Rubik said, The cube's character is contradictory, a mix of simplicity and complexity. The Japanese slogan for it goes, A minute to learn, a lifetime to master. You never finish it. Isn't that it. the
3: catchphrase of Othello? Sure.
2: Oh, uh, I think that's Othello's catchphrase. You never finish it. There will always be new challenges slash discoveries. The design was also important. A good example of having everything you need and nothing more. He also said children still discover the cube for themselves in our digital age. People say young people lose contact with the real world, but while there are so many applications for the cube 3000 or more, they can interestingly play with these applications with the cube in their hands. And I hope children continue to discover the cube much like I have this past week. It's been a revelation. Thanks so much. Uh, everybody, for listening to this episode on the Rubik's Cube, uh, and appreciate you, uh, listening. If you'd like to support us more, uh, please check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do weekly bonus episodes for just five dollars a month at fifteen dollars a month. You can join us on our Sunday study session. Uh, You're going to miss it as of the time of this recording, but we're about to go into our production schedule this Sunday, where we decide on what uh, episode topics we're going to do for the next few months, and we do that. Every few months, so uh, check it out. Uh, Also, check me out, twitch.tv forward slash to Nature's Ho. I'm streaming four days a week, Monday through Friday, uh, with the Thursday off. I, uh, yeah, have a great time on there. Uh, Jake joins me sometimes for the Money Pit on Tuesdays, but check me out on twitch.tv forward slash to Nature's Ho. Jake?
3: Follow me on... (laughs) X. <laughs> Follow me on X, at Best Jake Young. Follow me on Instagram and threads, at Best Jake Young. And uh, yeah, I'm also on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Puppet uh, The flagship stream is the Cartoon Dumpster. Every Thursday, we watch weird old cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and today, and just uh, rip them to shit. It's a very good time. And uh, also, hey... Uh, Remember what Holden said about the Patreon? It's really important. It's
2: how this show survives.
3: You should uh, check it out. I think you'll like it.
2: All right. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on cubing.
1: This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.